We knew upon hearing our guest today speak at UC Davis last year would we would want her back. After concluding a talk on Bonk, the curious coupling of science and sex, writer Mary Roach mentioned that her next book would be about the odd problems involved with human space voyages. That topic has approximately the same relationship to this program as Candy does to a baby. So it is that she tours the country to promote Packing for Mars, the curious science of life in the void. We're delighted to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Mary Roach. Hey, thanks, Doug. Uh, Mary, your books probe areas that people are curious about, but that are, I guess you'd say, delicate to investigate. Uh, let's, let's start with the fact that many people think the biggest obstacle to manned missions to Mars will be psychological. Keeping a crew in small quarters for a year from killing each other or from at least personal strife is a serious concern based on experience. Absolutely, yeah. They, you know, because you think about space, you're in a, you're locked in a room with five or six people uh, that you didn't choose them. So you've got in, in a Mars mission, two years more or less. Uh, that's a long time to be stuck with people that, uh, in a fairly stressful situation. And you, and the other things you can, you know you, you can't slam the door and go out for a drive. You're really soaking <laughs> in it. And what happens? Uh, um, space psychiatrists say that after after about six, even just a six week mission, you start uh, they start to kind of withdraw, get a little less patient, um, and they get a phenomenon called displacement, which is when you you don't want to pick a fight with your crewmate because you know you depend on these people for your survival, so you tend to take it out on mission control and you get very grumpy with the people down on the ground. Or well, the other thing that can happen is you turn that frustration and anger inward, and and if you do that, if you sort of repress it, you tend to get depressed. And depression has been a problem on uh, some of the Mir uh, missions. Uh, people got depressed. I spoke to a cosmonaut. It was just one of these amazing lines. He said, "Kind of sums up space." He says, "He says yes, I did. I got very depressed. There were times when I wanted to hang myself, but of course." In zero gravity, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> so, such a Russian thing to say. Well, I, I was going to say, your books are filled with anecdotes that don't uh, turn up elsewhere, and those investigations you made into the Russian space program look to be um, uh, especially fruitful. I, I wanted to cite one tale that you mentioned um, about that subject of crew rebellion, which, which really struck me. I guess as the cosmonauts one day are unloading a supply capsule for the Salyut space station, they notice some onions and they're supposed to observe the <laughs> yeah. onion bulbs sprouting in zero G. Yeah. They decide spur of the moment to eat them instead. Yeah, yeah. It was just, they were somebody had sent up a science experiment to see will onion bulbs bloom in space. And we're, <laughs> we're talking early, early days of, of space exploration. So no, a lot of unanswered questions. And the crew, uh, they they open up everything, and they've got they've got some lovely some rye rye bread or some some, some I think it was rye bread, and they and some salt, and they look at the onions. And they cut them up. And then later, the scientist calls up on the radio and like, how are the onions? Oh, the onions are, they're fine. Did they bloom? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep, they bloomed. Yep, they bloomed. And, and the scientists are just going crazy. They're so excited. And then the, the cosmonaut says, uh, could we take this off uh, uh, to, into a private space? Okay, listen, please, for God's sakes, we ate your onions. <laughs> It's good stuff. I was amazed. I was. I, I've, I've read a lot about some of these early space missions, but you found something I'd never seen before that uh, that the Russians, out of fear that Yuri Gagarin might sort of have his mind blown by being out in space, they took some precautions as to his operations of his own space capsule. Yeah, they they locked the controls. It was a, it was a difficult, kind of a 
a, a dilemma because they wanted they, they didn't want him to be completely unable to control the craft in case of an emergency but they didn't they wanted to they wanted to control it themselves because they feared he, you know, he just, his, his mind would be blown exactly so what they did is they had a, a, a secret combination to unlock the controls, which was put in a sealed envelope that he was not to touch. <laughs> it was kind of like a game show. Well, zero gravity, or I guess it's more properly microgravity, is a very weird state for the body to find itself in. A lot of biological problems, and you talked about that in the book quite a bit. Uh, without gravity, for example, a person doesn't really know that his bladder is full, and he has trouble peeing, which is a serious problem. The way your bladder lets you know that it's time to make a trip to the toilet is that there are these stretch receptors, and the you know as the liquid you know it's at the bottom halfway through the lower half of the bladder and it's filling up and it's causing these receptors to stretch, but in zero gravity the liquid is not in the bottom of the bladder; it's all around, clinging to the sides of the bladder by surface tension. So by the time you get those stretch receptors activated, your bladder may be so full that it's pressing on the urethra and it's difficult to go to the bathroom and then you know you've got the that's got to call out the self-catheterization kit and maybe a medical consult down to mission control so it's going to the bathroom in space is not always a laughing matter well most people have seen those uh, those photos of people bouncing around in in those aircraft flying parabolas to recreate uh, zero gravity and that intrigues people and i guess you had the chance to do some of that like to talk about what that was like from a first-hand experience it was so fabulous it was it's a, yeah, it's a the parabolic flight where the plane's doing a roller coaster up and down. And on the, the downward part of the, the um, flight, when you're heading down precipitously, you've got 20 seconds or so of zero gravity where you're just you're floating like a soap bubble. And I wondered what, I kind of thought it would be like floating in a swimming pool, but it's different because you don't feel any, you know, in a pool you would have the resistance of the water. The other thing is that your organs inside you are now weightless and you don't realize what your organs inside you your organs are kind of you know your heart is hanging off the aorta and things are resting against other things and, and there and it there is a very subtle sensation that you don't realize until it's gone and then you just feel, hmm. you feel like lighter than air and you are and it's it's uh i would just love to do it again <laughs> Well, in talking of that zero-G environment, you ran down a very curious rumor that uh, someone had filmed a porn film in flying those parabolas, and you looked into that. What, what did you discover? Yeah, I, I saw a uh, reference to this film, The Uranus Experiments, which was a porn film supposedly shot on one of those uh, par parabolic flights like we were just speaking about. So I, I contacted the producer who's in Spain, and I asked him, and he said, oh, yeah, 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 we, uh, we did that. And I said, you, what did, which plane did you use? He said, well, I have a timeshare in a private jet company, and that's what we did. And I said, you got the pilot of a private jet to do parabolic arcs? Yeah, 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 we did. And so I said, okay. And so he was kind enough to send me a download to the film, and I'm, look, I'm watching it, and you get to the, the, the scene, you know, or the, the, the zero-gravity sex scene, and it's, a, it's an oral sex scene. And, uh, so, and, I, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, all right. And then I go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. She's got a ponytail, and it's hanging down her back. <laughs> and uh, basically what they did is fl flipped it over so that it looks like the guy is floating. It's just he was on his back and turned it over. And for the scenes where they're supposedly in zero gravity, they're kind of, their legs are hidden behind a console, and they're kind of going up and down on their tiptoes and waving their arms <laughs> in the air. It, uh, sadly, it was not shot. 
didn't well, share gravity. Well, we're sad to hear that, but yes. uh, while you put that one to bed, as it were, this greater issue of sex and space is, is out there. No one seems willing to talk much about it. And what, what, what do we know about the 200-mile high club? Well, I, I was in Star City and outside Moscow where the cosmonauts train, and I spoke to a number of cosmonauts, uh, a bunch of them who are uh, retired now, and I brought this up, and the, the, the mission that most people gossip about is uh, uh, was uh, Valery Polyakov and Elena Kondakova, who were up on Mir for uh, uh, a significant chunk of time. And I asked my source, I said, so so you know them, what what do you think? He said, we were always asking him, so, 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 did it happen? And apparently Polyakov would say, don't ask me this question. And he also, my source, pointed out that uh, Elena Kondakova is married to another cosmonaut, so they all know each other. It would have been uh, a, a little bit complicated. But who knows? You know, I, my sense is that if it had happened, somebody would somebody would tell somebody else, and you know that as an astronaut, particularly at NASA, if you want to fly again, I, I think you wouldn't risk doing that. That's that's just my guess. Because you would get, you know, it would be a big public flap and the press would be all over sure, it. Sure, sure. And uh, it's, uh, you, you'd lose your career. My, I was telling my agent this story and he goes, yeah, it might be worth it, no? <laughs> well, another touchy subject, I suppose, along the same lines is space sickness. Uh, it turns out this is uh, something astronauts don't want to talk about, but it's to this day is a huge problem on the shuttle and the space station. Yeah, space motion sickness, the statistic I saw, t- uh, 50 to 70 percent of astronauts are feeling a little under the weather the, the first few days. That's why you don't see spacewalks in the first couple of days when the astronauts go up, because uh, as one person at NASA put it to me, they're off in the, cor- <laughs> cor- in the corner in the fetal position. <laughs> but they, uh, they, and you can, you can use drugs, but the problem with that is that you delay adaptation. And if you're up in space for you know, two weeks or three or four, six, whatever months, as some of the space station astronauts are, you, you, you need to adapt. You need to let your body go through the adaptation, so you have to kind of muscle through a few days of feeling really crappy. Well, another, another delicate topic that's a huge problem, hygiene in space. Uh, the showers apparently don't, do not work too well up there, and it's pretty tough to keep people from sort of smelling bad while, uh, while in orbit. Yeah, they, uh, the showers don't work. The water, just, the water comes out and forms a big sphere. It doesn't... Uh, and if you hold it close to your body, then the water ricochets off your body and you have lots of tiny spheres that you then have to chase down all over the spacecraft. It really, really doesn't work. It tends to cling to concavities in the body, like the eyes and the no- nostrils and the mouth, so you could, you could drown, very easily drown in the shower. So the guys on the uh, Salyut space station would wear a snorkel mask when they, when they showered. That was one of the few showers that ever actually flew. Now they just use moist towelettes and sort of, you know, wipe themselves clean. Uh, hygiene, I, I, I came across these wonderful, uh, back in the Gemini era they, at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, they had a space cabin simulator, and one of the things they were studying was what happens to skin, uh, armpits, etc., when you don't bathe for two weeks while wearing a spacesuit, because their initial plan was to keep them in the suits, in the pressure suits, the whole Gemini mission. And some of those, one of those at least was a two-week mission. And so they, these poor students from Dayton University would come over and they'd be paid to sit in a box with the temperature cranked up, wearing a suit, their underwear literally decomposing as time went on, and having people come in and sniff their armpits and see how their smell was developing. It was a really surreal research. <laughs> We're speaking with author Mary Roach about her most interesting book, 
Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void. Uh, Mary, a few years ago, an astronaut alumnus visited UC Davis, and, uh, and I started to ask him about something I was curious about, a book by um, another astronaut, William Pogue. It was titled, How Do You Go to the Bathroom in Space? But uh, before I could say public relations and starting to ask about this, <laughs> he steered me away from anything about this awkward area. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's an important question. How do you cope with nature's call while in orbit? And Mary, you looked into this. Oh, I for sure did. I have the what I like to think is the definitive chapter on zero-gravity elimination. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's tricky because a toilet on Earth relies on gravity for the material, to use the euphemism that NASA uses. <laughs> yeah. The material, you know, as, it, as the mass of the material grows, the gravity growing weight of it pulls it, it drops away from the body down into the toilet. Well, that doesn't happen in space. So you have this problem, this separation problem, as they put it, so, and in the early the um, Gemini and Apollo flights, there was no toilet, there was no bathroom, there was a fecal bag, and you basically uh, had to and and to get the separation, you had to use what's called a finger cot, where you put your fingers through and you know you're, it's like little gloved fingers, and you would have to effectively nudge the material away into the bag, mix germicide in, roll it up. It was incredibly off-putting and distasteful process, and the astronauts hated it. There was this great line when, uh, after Apollo, they were getting some feedback from astronauts, and they were all complaining about the, the fecal bag, and one of the uh, brass at NASA says, we have to do better. <laughs> and they did. They came up with a, these very, very fancy, uh, very loud, complicated uh, toilets that use air flow. It's kind of like a shop vac. It kind of entrains the bolus is the uh, other euphemism I love. So you're sort of whooshing the material away. But the, the, the other problem then is how do you test this toilet? Well, you take it up on one of those zero-gravity flights like we were talking about, and you have 20 seconds for the volunteer to <laughs> test the toilet. And, you know, you can imagine, if you think about that, that's um, quite a challenge. 20 seconds. Ready, go! Yes, it is. Wow. Um, I, I just had to laugh when you described how one Japanese researcher said he was... Um testing people in, in an isolation chamber, and you asked him about stressors, and he says, yeah, I'm thinking about disabling the toilet, which turns out to be just an all-too-realistic uh, simulation, I guess. Yeah, I, I was imagining setting fire to something in the sleeping quarters and seeing, you know, it's, you know something more along the lines of Apollo 13, something kind of life-threatening. And But the more realistic problem, the, something that, you know, that happens routinely in space is, the toilet's not working. And so that's, uh, they felt that that would be a good way to see uh, to test their mettle. Well, Mary, New Scientist magazine gives your book a fine review. Uh, they were struck by your reflections on the fact that early in the space race, engineers were thinking about making parts of the, of the craft edible, an idea they moved away from, but uh, I guess still remains viable. Well, you, you could. Yeah, they were, there was some wonderful uh, thinking outside the box that went, back, that went on back in the 60s when uh, the aerospace people thought, well, well, we'll get to the moon, and then right after that, we'll be on to Mars. So let's think this through. How are we going to do it? And you don't, you don't want to be launching all of the food for six people uh, uh, initially into space for a two-year mission. That would be uh, a lot of a lot of food to be launching. So on the way home, you could be you just commence eating parts of the ship that you don't need. That is true. The other thing that they suggested uh, was uh, eat your clothing that that could be uh, when you've, you're done wearing the clothing instead of just putting it aside in a laundry pile because there's no laundry facility, or, well, they were thinking there wouldn't be, that, that you would then eat, you'd make it out of edible keratin fibers and 
you would eat the clothing, or you could, uh, food could be used as radiation shielding, line the capsule with food on the way there, and then on the way back when you've eaten that food, you'd use the waste material as your radiation shielding. And there were all kinds of marvelously uh, innovative and bizarre uh, notions. And what we end up doing, uh, hard to say, because it'll be a while since that till we go to Mars. So and you could always send resup- unmanned resupply vehicles. Well, your book is filled with all sorts of, uh, of little wonderful stories like that. We don't even begin to scratch the surface on that. So people are going to have to read it, read it on their own, I think. But as we close, I wanted to bring up my, um, my favorite single anecdote from the many you have in the book. After NASA elected early on to send chimps on their first space flights, this, this sort of bruised the egos of a lot of the astronaut corps. And so some years later, they elected to honor the grave of Ham, the first chimp that was sent up. Someone had the bad judgment to invite Alan Shepard to attend the <laughs> yeah. ceremony. And he apparently still had some ill will toward his rival primate in space. Yeah, there was. I don't know what the, the publicity people were thinking. Because, the, the, yes, uh, there, there's this great anecdote about how on the trailer that took the, both the, the chimps and the astronauts, Mercury astronauts, out to the gantry, there was a traje- you know, they plotted Alan Shepard's trajectory, and then someone from the veterinary department plotted Ham's higher and farther, because Ham actually went higher and farther than <laughs> Alan Shepard did. He said they ripped that card down right away. <laughs> right away. So, yeah, they, uh, they, they didn't mingle much, the, um, the Ham group and the Alan Shepard and the, the Mercury 7. I also want to note, too, to please note, you vindicated the first chimp in orbit, Enos. He apparently got a bad rap from some space historians. Yeah, Enos had a nickname. Enos the penis, and, and there have been a couple, there was a rumor that started, one of the space writers, popular uh, chroniclers of space, said that this was because Enos had a, a habit of touching himself, and that there was this all, that, and then it kind of went from there, people were talking about how they devised a balloon catheter to prevent him from touching himself, there, were, there was a story about him pulling his diaper down at a press conference, and then the light bulbs come off, anyway, um, I called Enos's handlers, uh, who are in their seven? The two of them, they're in their seventies now. And the guy said, he "said Enos, his that his nickname had nothing to do with that. Who told you this? We called him Enos the Penis because he was such a son of a gun. He was a <laughs> I won't use the slang, right. but anyway, he um, he said, no, that's not true. Who told you that? But I tracked it back through like four different books, and it would change slightly in each telling, and you know where Enos was." Uh, you know, because I, I had a chapter, I have a chapter on sex in space, and I thought, oh, here we go. Well, here's the first orgasm in space. It was Enos, and I was all excited. But, yeah, in fact, poor Enos. I cleared his name. I, I applaud your, your, your efforts for doing, doing exactly that. Uh, f- final question, Mary. After all you've learned about the hardships of human space flight, uh, the question is, would you play a space tourist on the space station, or would you pack for Mars? I would love to go to the moon. Send me to the moon. Absolutely. Two weeks to me, that's the perfect amount of time. I'd like to be walking around on, a, on, a, on another heavenly body. I, um, Mars, I don't think I have what it takes psychologically for two years in a can. You don't want to spend two years in a can with me. You really don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mary Roach, it's, uh, again, the book is Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void. It's a great read, and we hope that a lot of our listeners will go out and grab a copy because they, they will be well rewarded. Well, thank you so much. And that was a really fun interview.
stage is 